On the reverse. Jalen Red for the pylon. Touchdown! After review, it was determined the runner's left foot touched out of bounds prior to crossing the goal line. The ball will be placed at the one-yard line. High snap again. Herbert stumbling around. Can't pick it up in the Cardinal are off and running. Alfieri is going to scoop and score to give the Cardinal life. Burdell again. And he'll work hard to move the step. Ball's out. The ball came out. A fumble recovered by Stanford. Stanford has the ball with 51 seconds left. Sean Barton came up with it. Can you believe it? And we will have overtime in Austin. Costello has time. Looks for the end zone. Jump ball. Deflected. Caught. Touchdown, Parkinson. The big man on the carom gives the Cardinal the lead. Herbert, plenty of time, throws across the middle, batted up, intercepted, and Stanford stages a stunning comeback victory at Oxen Stadium. Browning throws on the run, deep throw, and a touchdown! Ty Jones the catch. Peyton Henry to win it, and he hooked it! No good! Mitchell goes in motion, they hand it off, straight ahead for a touchdown! C.J. Wins the game for Oregon. Trying the fade route, and it's caught touchdown. What an effort by Isaiah Hodgins. Coletto, quarterback draw straight ahead, reaches out. He's in, touchdown, Oregon State. Luton, play action, throws for the end zone. Touchdown, Isaiah Hodgins. Pressure coming. Luton for the end zone. Touchdown. Jack Coletto turns it upfield. And he's into the end zone. Touchdown, Oregon State. Montez throws. And Oregon State, a miraculous comeback, is finished. The Beavers have won in Boulder. That one's blocked. And headed the other way. There goes Hunter Dale looking for two. Tevis Bartlett trying to chase him down and save two points to no avail. Brownie looking the other direction. In trouble. Lost the football. Washington State scrambling for it, and they've got it. And the Cougars in business. Right back to the ground. Williams sticks the nose down. The ball might have come out. Gaskin behind Jacob Kaiser explodes. Inside the 10. He's in. Touchdown on an explosion from Miles Gaskin. Wilkins. He's got a path to the end zone. He's in there. Touchdown, ASU. Ball is loose. Arizona State's got it. Tyler Johnson as the collapse continues. Eno Benjamin, room to run. Arizona State has the lead. It's their first lead of the game from 45. No good. Shelly scans to the wide side. That ball struggled and picked. And headed the other way is Byron Murphy. A game-changing play. 66 yards to the house. Steps into one. Incomplete. And no flag. I want to congratulate uh, Coach Pete and the Huskies, the 2018 Pac-12 Championship. What's up? Surf's up.
Paws up, win the day, and all that other awesome Pac-12 stuff. I am your happy host, longing for the Pacific Coast, Chappie, and you all know my surf instructor, Mr. Bip Coley. Bip, what's happening, man? All I need, Chappie, are some tasty waves, a cool buzz, and I'm fine. <laughs> Chappie, Chappie, it's Pac-12 time, and the it's the only conference when you can have a headline that mentions a cougar, a beaver, and a Trojan while still keeping the story relatively PG. That's right. <laughs> Good call on that one, Bip. Um, yeah, and, and and all three fine institutions, I might add. So Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, let's get right on it. Let's get down to bipness, my good man. Let's crack open <laughs> this bag, fill up the bowl, and start munching on a bowl full of chips, your college football podcast that covers you coast to coast, top to bottom, and everything in between. Now, here at BFC, we bring football closer. Like the rising sun in the Golden State, things are looking bright for us, Bip, but without the smog, and we have you, the fans, to thank for that. And we know that college football is a healthy habit and part of your diet, so we encourage you to get more of what you crave, and you can get it right here. And unlike the Kardashians, we will work hard to give you good content. No whiny voices, no gender changes, no drama, except for maybe that of a fourth quarter comeback variety. Nobody gets hurt in the process. We'll bring you the content you want, and all we ask in return is that you share with friends, family, co-workers, acquaintances, basically anybody you know who enjoys the game, even half of what we all do. All you got to do is hit that share button on your device, and you can send it via text, email, or even just mentioning us by mouth or media. Help be a part of the good that is growing in our world. It's quick. It's easy. Just do it. And we thank you. So here on A Bowl Full of Chips, Bip and I love college football. We love to laugh, and we love California. Yeah, and I, the wife and I had the privilege to take a, a road trip a uh, year after we got married, um, six or seven years ago, and uh, our, our, we went from Michigan all the way out to the West Coast and stopped in California for a couple of days. And I got to tell you, Chappie, I like the good food. I love the good weather. And who doesn't love that L.A. traffic? Am I right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll pass. <laughs> <laughs> No, um, yeah, we we uh, we went to and the, and the name's escaping me. Uh, obviously, we went to to Los Angeles, but um, the the famous pier that's out there, Santa Monica, um, yes, sir, absolutely, absolutely, and, and it was really kind of cool and kind of eerie at the same time. To where, as you walk up um, on the beach there, at least when we were there, there was you couldn't really tell because of how many the 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 population there, whether it was smog that was outside or whether it was fog, <laughs> but. As soon as you walk, uh, keep walking on the sandy beach, it moves from that fog to just completely clear blue sky, and it was absolutely beautiful. One of the cooler experiences I've had of making such a, a stark transition from nothing but gray, cloudy Michigan spring sky to uh, clear blue California sky um, in the matter of just a couple hundred feet. And you said you guys drove all the way from Michigan out there, right? Yeah, wow. that's uh, <laughs> yeah, yay. Um, I mean, yeah, luckily that was before we had any kids. Um, I don't know if all of us would have made it back had we had uh, the children. No, that would have been uh, that would have been definite suicide had had that occurred. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, well, I mean, that's that's. I envy the the fact that you you got to see all that scenery on the road trip. My wife and I also made a trip out to the West Coast a couple of years ago to celebrate our our ten year anniversary, and we we took the road most traveled, and that is we flew, um, and it was kind of cool to see the scenery. Mm -hmm. Although I did 
admit that we were a little nervous flying over the mountains because, you know, seeing all those uh, those movies where you see somebody inevitably crashing a plane into a, a set of mountains. I was hoping that our <laughs> right. pilots were top notch that day. So, but we obviously uh-huh. made it, and uh, we too went out to um, uh, Esc- or um, yeah, Escondido, California, I believe. But we we visited L.A. and the Hollywood scene. We went to Santa Monica, and that was our mm-hmm. favorite part. I mean, if anybody is anybody who's yeah. not been out there yet do yourself a favor and go to the pier at Santa Monica and the nightlife down there is pretty cool. It's just a great place to walk around. Um, you know, even going to Beverly Hills, it was cool to just say you did that. My wife being a big fan of, uh, celebrities and Hollywood stardom, she wanted to go out to Calabasas, but, uh, that came to an abrupt halt when, um, they basically have a gated community, uh, that, protects the gated community that protects the gated community. So we were turned away pretty quick <laughs> and uh, much to her uh, dismay, but uh, I was able to, uh, to survive that and, and not be too heartbroken. So, <laughs> um, right. but yeah, just uh, it, it's a cool place, big state. Uh, you know, that's, that's something to where I almost wish that we had two weeks just to spend out in California and go from the Southern part. Uh, we also went to San Diego and, um, you know, that's a beautiful area too. So to, to go from the South to San Diego, and, and I'd like to even travel North to San Francisco, Oakland area, um, mm-hmm. and even make that trip yeah. further along the West coast into Oregon and Washington state as well. Just beautiful place out there. Uh, definitely something that I'd like to do, uh, in the near future. Sure. So, um, you know, I, we talk about California, but obviously Pac-12 country spans not just the the Golden State, but also the Beaver State, the, uh, you know, Washington State, and then also Colorado and Utah as well. So we're going to cover all those states and their schools in today's edition of A Bowl Full of Chips. So um, we encourage you to follow us, a, give us a follow on Twitter. I am at champion underscore lit. And I am at BFC. So we'll give you more than just what we do here on this podcast. We love to retweet and send off great ideas, share great ideas. Uh, We find it is a very valuable resource of information, and that's really what we want as college football fans. So give us a, a follow on Twitter. Also, if you are inclined to do so, if you if you have any suggestions or commentary or just want to converse with two college football passionates, uh, we are at a bowlful of chips at gmail.com. So again, just bowlful of chips at gmail.com. Send us anything that you you feel might be helpful or, or uh, good for you to and, and for us as well. So speaking of Twitter, Biff, we do want to give a quick Twitter shout out to at Pac-12 podcast. Now, um, sometimes it's good to cross promote when you're doing this podcast thing. So uh, these guys, they bring you good Pac-12 content, especially if you are like us and you're not really in West Coast territory. It's, it's good to get to know from these guys. They have good chatter. They keep it real. So give them a follow. Give them a listen um, at Pac-12 podcast. So today on the show, we are going to be giving you a review of the Pac-12 in 2018. Bip and I are going to run down the teams and where they ended up in the Pac-12 standings. We're going to give you some of the sunshine seasons for the teams who had many, or who many had in the dark. And also we'll look at those teams whose sun had set far too early. We're going to give you the most outstanding players as we saw it, and also some of the gems that were perhaps covered by the diamonds of the conference. We'll also recap the most entertaining in-conference games of 2018, and finally give you our thoughts and some hints at what to expect in 2019. So we remind you that here on A Bowl Full of Chips, we pride ourselves much like we were in college, and being the the podcast that gives you more than what the big guys do. We pay attention to detail, we go the extra mile for research, and we're going to give you 
clean perspective rather than recycled readings from Twitter and other articles. We're not just going to be uh, giving you what our our corporate sponsors might be telling us that we want to do. We really don't have any corporate sponsors. So we're going essentially from what our opinions are and, and don't have to feel that they have to be polished to, to make anybody happy one way or another. Uh, we're going to keep it real as well. So we give you objective subjectivity. We're going to praise and punish whoever deserves it. And if you agree with us, awesome. If you disagree, we encourage that, but we won't back down to any perpendicular opinions. So BIP, let's take a look at how the Pac-12 ended up this year. So we'll start in the North Division. Um, we had Washington at number 13 to end the season. They finished 10-4 and four overall, uh, which included a Pac-12 championship over the Utah Utes, but they finished 7-2 and two in the conference. Behind them was their rivals from uh, Pullman, Washington State, who finished 11-2 and two on the year, but also 7-2 and two in the conference, Washington winning that head-to-head matchup. Stanford behind them in the North at nine and four overall, but six and three in the Pac-12. Oregon came at fourth at nine and four. They were five and four in the conference. Cal was seven and six, four and five in the conference, putting him fifth in the North. And then sixth place in the North Division were the two and ten Oregon State Beavers, who finished one and eight in the conference with their one win coming over the Colorado Buffaloes. On the South side. The Utah Utes were the Southern Division winners and lost by a field goal to Washington in that Pac-12 championship game, a game that ended in a little bit of controversy. They were 9-5 and five throughout the year, 6-3 and three in the Pac-12. Arizona State was runners-up in the South. They finished 7-6, and 5-4 and four in conference, followed by USC at 5-7 and seven and Arizona at 5-7. and seven. Both teams were 4-5 and five in the conference. Um, UCLA finished... Fifth in the South at three and nine overall, but those three wins did come in conference. So that was a bright spot for Chip Kelly and his boys out in UCLA. And then Colorado finished five and seven overall, two and seven in the South, which put them at sixth in that half of the division. So, Bip, let's get right down to it and let's hear from you. Who was your surprise team? Who was the sunshine team that stood out as, as having a season that many maybe didn't expect? Well, we're going to go to Pullman, Washington, Chappie. I'm going to go with the Washington State Cougars. This is uh, a team that, when you look at their offensive stats, it's really kind of an anomaly. They finished 27th in the country in yards per game, 15th in, in points per game. And you don't, that's not necessarily a surprise with Mike Leach, but the in how they did it was kind of uh, shocking. Um, again, not in. Uh, how Mike Leach normally performs uh, with his offensive play calls, but they were first in the country in passing yards per game, second to last in rushing yards per game. Um, so really a top-notch passing game uh, that provided them um, finishing second in the in the uh, Pac-12 North. Um, they start off Owen or they start off three and zero, but their wins were against Wyoming, San Jose State, and Eastern Washington. And you think, okay, coming up against USC, how's this team going to fare? They lose thirty nine thirty six in a game that was back and forth, in which Washington State had multiple opportunities to put the game away, but those pesky uh, Trojans hung around and outlasted the Cougars. At that point, you're thinking, okay, this might be a seven or eight win Cougar team if they keep putting points up. But surprisingly, though, it was their defense that powered them through uh, that allowed for them uh, to have as successful of a season as they did. Uh, Defensively, they were 28th in the country in yards per game, 39th in points per game. Um, They go on to win their next seven games, including wins against Utah, Oregon and at Stanford. And they finish their season losing in the Apple Cup to Washington 28 to 15. And in this game, the Cougars were 
in it for the most part, but Washington did an unbelievable job ending the game with a 14-play, 76-yard drive that chewed up eight minutes and 47 seconds as the clock hit zero. So the the Huskies ended up at the five-yard line holding onto the ball as the clock ran out. So it could have been even uglier than what it actually was. And the, the Huskies did an unbelievable job stopping the Washington State passing game. But that said, they they finished with a, a, a bowl win against a, a really good Iowa State team. And going into the season, you knew that they were going to throw the ball a lot, but you're not sure who they were going to have throwing it. Gardner Minshew comes in and is the latest quarterback to go through the Mike Leach revitalization program, throws for over 4,700 yards, 38 touchdowns, completing over 70% of his passes and only threw nine picks. Another stat that jumped out against uh, towards me was he was only sacked 13 times this year, um, despite the fact that he had 662 passing attempts. So, um, and also, as I mentioned, uh, oddly enough, despite having a good defense this year, Washington State only had one all Pac-12 or uh, or first or second team selection, which was uh, Logan Tago. So really a, a great team defense that was um, played this year by the Cougars as they didn't have a whole lot of standouts uh, in relation to um, all Pac-12 selections. Um, finished 20th in the country in turnover margin with a plus eight margin. So a great job done by Mike Leach and the Cougars this year. Finished 11 and two on the season. Finished number 10 in the country, much higher than I ever anticipated that they would this year, especially with the question marks that they had going into the season at quarterback. Yeah, I agree. That's a good pick. And and they were really, um, you know, we touched on it in an earlier podcast in terms of nationally, who were the most pleasant surprises. I had Washington State also as really the biggest and most pleasant surprise in college football this year. Um, and like you said, it's the defense. And I don't have their stats in front of me from two years ago when Alex Grinch was their D coordinator, which they did a good job. But Tracy Clays, as their defensive coordinator this season, I think did a much better job. They were uh, in the top third of college football defenses in five of the major defensive categories, and many of them you already touched on. Um, I mean, you look at their their season; they were eleven and two. That three point loss at the Coliseum against USC in Week Four that was when. Uh, a field goal to tie it late was blocked. So that game very well could have gone into overtime and maybe gone the uh, the Cougars' way. And then, like you mm-hmm. said, uh, kind of neck and neck in the Apple Cup. And who knows, if, if there wasn't that deluge of snow that they played in the Apple yes. Cup, you know, I think that that clearly would have favored the Cougars. And let's keep in mind that Washington had one of the best defenses in uh in the Pac-12 let alone in the country so um right. you know they, it, it's not like they they kind of uh pooped the bed so to speak in that game it was really they were going up against a, a pretty good Washington team and, and certainly a well-coached team and again that Apple Cup seems to be the the uh the hill that Mike Leach is struggling to to overcome at least when mm-hmm. he's got a, a remarkable season like he had this year so that's a good pit, pick bip and because I had them, and because I had a feeling you were going to go to them as well, I'm going to look at another surprise team, and that's Arizona State. Now, people will look at their record and say, well, it was 7-6. and That's not that great. And they were 7-6 and the year before, and Todd Graham got fired for that. Um, They were 6-3 and in the Pac-12, 
Five of their seven wins this year were against teams that didn't make it to a bowl. However, if you look at where they started to begin the season, the moment that Herm Edwards was awarded the job and was chosen as their coach, nationally, everybody laughed. And I will admit, I was in that group. I didn't really give him much of a chance. He was called a joke by some people. People were worried that he couldn't recruit because he'd only had one college, or his last college job was, I believe, at San Jose State back in the late 80s. So we're talking um, three decades removed from the collegiate experience. There were many who felt that he couldn't relate to his players. Um, And all he did this year was come in and... His team was picked to finish last in the South. They finished second. Um, And if you look at their schedule, they played in nine one-score games. So that Mm -hmm. seven and six record really could have been much, much better than than what it was. And and let's not take anything away from a seven and six season. Uh, That's a winning season. And they were five and four in the Pac-12. Uh, They did some good things, especially on the offensive side of the ball. And I think that's where um, they had their calling card. They were 29th in yards per play. They, their offensive line only allowed 14 sacks. Now, part of that is because of the athletic nature of Manny Wilkins at quarterback, uh, but they also took care of the football. They were 11th nationally in, in the turnover margin. Um, yeah. So they, they didn't give up the ball very often, and defensively they were able to create turnovers, which always helps your offense. So, um, yeah, I'm going to give it to the, the Sun Devils. And, you know, they did beat two ranked teams, Michigan State at the time, and then they did beat the South uh, champion Utah Utes. However, they couldn't take care of their business uh, and their other games enough to where um, Utah had the better conference record and, and got to that conference championship. So um, Eno Benjamin, I think, is going to be one of the the big home run hitters going into 2019, maybe a dark horse Heisman candidate. So watch out for number three. And, you know, especially when you when you compared Her- Herm Edwards to the other coaches in the Pac-12, guys like Mike McIntyre, who won National Coach of the Year in 2016, um, uh, Chip Kelly and all his success at Oregon, uh, Clay Helton and what he's done at USC prior to last year, and then even Kevin Sumlin, who was considered to be the best hire and the best new coach, and many were picking him to be kind of that dark horse. Uh, they thought that he was going to take that Arizona team and really do a lot of things, and they didn't even make a bowl. So kudos to Herm Edwards and and really proving a lot of us wrong, myself included, again in uh, finishing second in that Pac-12 South. Yeah, and I'm like you, Chappie. When Herm, Her, when Herm Edwards' name was thrown out there as a potential candidate, I was kind of scratching my head. I like him on ESPN. He seems like a passionate guy, and he has a good amount of experience because he's done a lot of work with the, uh, I believe, the Under Armour All-American game. So yeah. you, you feel as though he had his finger on the pulse a little more than what people were saying beforehand. But I'm like you. I was really curious to see how he would do. Um, had a lot of the stats that, that you had already mentioned, especially the uh, their plus 10 turnover margin and the nine, uh, nine games that were won or lost by one score. Um, so you could you could make the point, like you said, that where they could have a few more wins this year considering that they played in so many tight games. But curious how that's going to play into next year. They lose Nikhil Harry, they lose Manny Wilkins, and that, that plus 10 turnover margin could turn into a negative turnover margin from year to year. Right. How does that play with uh, if they ha- if they find themselves in a lot of other um, similarly close games in 2019. But um, yeah, for sure. I, I like the pick. Um, someone had to take the reins in the, in the South outside of Utah and Arizona state did a great job this year with first year head coach term. Yeah. 
Well, flipping it over to the negative side now, um, there's a couple teams that I looked at as possible big disappointments in the Pac-12. And one of them um, I kind of already mentioned in a previous podcast. So I'm going to highlight this team, and that's the Colorado Buffaloes. So here's why, to me, they were a disappointment this year. They started off 5-0 and and got as high as number 19 in the country. And at the time they were ranked 19th, they were playing a USC team that was struggling. Um, they ended up losing their next and final seven games. So starting with that <laughs> USC game, they dropped seven in a row. Now, again, we mentioned that Mike McIntyre won Coach of the Year a couple years prior. Um, and this was a Colorado team that in the last four years, they have averaged – uh, a ranking, a recruiting ranking of 50th in the country. They were as high as 35th um, in national recruiting in in one of those four years. So it's not like they were devoid of talent, maybe not as high as some of the other Pac-12 schools, but certainly enough and with the right coaching to to cultivate it and use it well. That offense looked really good. LaVisca Chenault, uh, Steven Montez was, was operating things as well as any quarterback in the Pac-12 in those first five games. Um, their defense was was flying around and, and, and doing well in that 3-4. And then the bottom kind of just fell out. They, The five teams that they beat, you know, looking back, only averaged four wins. And that includes FCS New Hampshire. So uh, of those seven losses that they had to close out the season, three of them came at home, which is a place where you're expected to at least have, you know, one or two of those wins. And one of those home drops was blowing a 31-point lead against Oregon State, uh, or a 28-point lead, I should <laughs> wow. say, back in the fourth quarter. Yeah, so not only do you lose at home and drop uh, a game to Oregon State, no disrespect to the Beavers, but they blew a 28-point lead, and, and you just can't do that. Um, they uh, they finished bottom in uh, the country in six of the eight major offensive categories. So we're talking they were in the bottom third in in most offensive categories that really meant anything. They were number 70 in scoring defense. They were 91st in turnover margin, so they were not that good at protecting the ball and and couldn't get it back on defense either. Um so that was all a recipe to show Mike McIntyre the door. There was also some concerns about maybe how he handles some of his uh, practices and players, and uh, I don't think that he really uh, rubbed much of the local media or even the national media the right way. Kind of one of those guys that's just, I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. Uh, to me, he kind of looks like a slightly cleaned up version of Ron White uh, with his uh, face <laughs> and, and some of his uh, expressions and mannerisms. But um, yeah, so I, I got to give Colorado my big disappointment this year. Yeah, and and like you mentioned, uh, the can't believe that they couldn't win one of their last seven games. And, and like you mentioned, their their schedule was not the strongest. A USC team, like you mentioned, that was struggling. Oregon State, Arizona, even Cal yeah. uh, could have been a potentially uh, a game that they could have come away with knowing that that was their last game of the season. Mm -hmm. And that was a game to get them in uh, to a bowl. They only had two losses this year that were by one score or closer. And one of those was Arizona by eight points. And the other was the Oregon statement uh, game that you mentioned that went into overtime. They kind of lived and died by LaVisca Chenault. And when he got hurt this year, you saw how poorly this team could perform. Um, and uh, just uh, 
I have to agree complete with you. Uh, com- uh, let me talk for a second. <laughs> I have to agree completely with you there, Chappie, on, on Colorado. But I'm going to take it in a different direction because going into the season, I didn't really have high expectations for Colorado. Right. I did have relatively high expectations for the USC Trojans. So they opened the season at number 17 in the AP poll, coming off an 11-3 and season. Now, they did lose their their potentially their best player um, in Sam Darnold, but they have a lot of talent coming back. They lose back-to-back games at Stanford and at Texas, which you can swallow given the fact that they were starting a true freshman quarterback. So when they rip off three straight, including giving Colorado their first loss of the season to go four and two, you're thinking, well, maybe the Trojans have something. And then they proceed to go one and five to finish their season and miss a bowl. Now, this is a team that was ravaged by injuries, but uh, four of their final losses were by one score, including a a loss against Cal by one and um, against Arizona State by three. But the Trojans, their biggest Achilles heel this year was they could not close out a game to save their life. They um, didn't seem to be able to make any adjustments to... um, going into the half or coming out of the half and even more so they couldn't adjust to the adjustments made by the opposing team. They were negative 10 in their turnover margin, which tied for 109th in the country. JT Daniels was solid as a true freshman. However, I expected a little more given his talent level Mm -hmm. and he had maybe uh, a top five uh, receiving core um, with that group of receivers that they have in USC with Pittman, Vaughn's and uh, Amon Ross St. Brown. He had a pretty good um, running game with uh, Aka Cedric Ware, who rushed for 825 yards and 6.6 yards per carry. But, I mean, defensively, they just couldn't overcome the amount of injuries that they had. As their last game against Notre Dame, they were playing at least one walk-on in the secondary. Um, Porter Gustin was on pace for a huge year for the Trojans, having seven and a half sacks and 10 tackles for loss through the first six game. He goes down with a season ending injury, but in USC with such a down PAC 12 South, um, I thought that it was so bad that USC should have had little trouble winning it this year, or given their injuries, they should have at least still been able to make a bowl, but they vastly underachieve and they missed going to a bowl after going to the cotton bowl and the Rose bowl and back-to-back seasons. Right. So because of that, they get my nod based off of the talent level going into the season. And this is going to be a really interesting year for Clay Helton and crew um, if they uh, underachieve again. Yeah, and, and I completely agree that, that is a, that's a good pick for big disappointment based on preseason expectations. Um, and, and, you know, we had, we had touched on that before as well. So good pick there, Bip. Um, so... Let's get back to the positive. Let's look at some of the individual players who were outstanding. And again, outstanding meaning you're watching a game and you're thinking, wow, this guy really jumps out on film to me. So not necessarily the guy who has the quote unquote best stats, but somebody who is a game changer. Who is that for you on the offensive side of the ball? Well, uh, in taking a dive into the stats, I saw that Gardner Minshew threw for the 22nd most passing yards in a single NCAA season. But he also had the six most passing attempts in a single season in the NCAA. He was also fifth in passing yards uh, for a single season amongst Mike Leach quarterbacks. So when you pass the ball 80% of the time or whatever that actual figure is, it's relatively easy to put up the number. So I think it was an easy an easy choice for me to go with Eno Benjamin from Arizona State. 
He led the Pac-12 in yards from scrimmage and actually was 338 yards ahead of second place uh, J.J. Taylor from Arizona. Um, additionally, he led the Pac-12 in rushing yards, rushing touchdowns, and total touchdowns. He did have three games in which he rushed for under 40 yards, so that gave me a little bit of a, a pause uh, for just a moment. But in the in each of those games, he also added over 40 yards receiving. So really a, a true all-around threat for the Sun Devils. And if it weren't for him, uh, a lot of those one-score games that you mentioned, Chappie, could have completely gone the other way uh, in a negative fashion for Arizona State. So he was kind of an easy choice for me uh, for most outstanding player. Yeah, and that's a good pick. I was, I was honestly almost a coin flip between him and my guy that I actually went with, and that was Gardner Minshew. Now here's why I chose Minshew. Um, outstanding mm-hmm. because not only because of his play, and, and to your point, you, you bring up a good – thing to think about and you know are those stats skewed because of the fact that he was relying on you know the passing game so frequently um you know you play the 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 numbers game it it seems like it would be easy to put up some of those numbers that would put you in the top half of your conference and maybe even the country but he was a pac-12 leader in six categories so I didn't. I, I with a quarterback, I never really just look at passing yards because I mean, you look at a lot of those right. Mike Leach guys; they would rack up the stats. But I, what stands out most to me is their quarterback efficiency rating, which was one forty-seven point six for Minshew, which means that he's completing passes. He completed seventy-one percent of his passes, um, and yeah, there's the the air raid relies somewhat on the outside quick screens, but more often than not, those who watch Mike Leach offenses. A lot of these passes are being completed seven to 10 yards down the field. So he averaged 367 yards per game. He had a 38 to nine touchdown to interception ratio. So pretty darn good with that. Five games he completed 75% or better. So, I mean, there are quarterbacks in the college game who struggle to complete 75% on air with no defense, with no rush, um, (laughs) you know, no obstruction. He had six games of 400 plus passing yards. Um, and again, this was a, a Pac-12 where their defense was actually better than their offense, and we'll touch on that toward the end of our podcast, but he wasn't going up against slouch defenses on the other side of the field. He was 4-1 and one in close games, and by close games, I mean games decided by a touchdown or less, so he was a winner. Um, and the fact that he kind of came out of nowhere and many people didn't really know who was going to be the quarterback. And then for the for him to come in and come in late, he really didn't get to start practicing with his teammates until the fall. So it wasn't like he was a grad transfer that was in in the spring. He had to pick up a lot of this on the fly and did a really good job at it. Um, his best game came against Arizona, where he completed 78% of his passes, seven touchdowns, 473 yards to zero interceptions. So even back in my NCAA uh, college football playing games uh, days of, of PlayStation bit, uh, it was yep. it was hard to complete that much and to throw for that many touchdowns with no <laughs> interceptions. There was always at least one or two. Um, right. And really, you know, the two games that he struggled in statistically were against those good defenses, Washington and then Iowa State. But, you know, he beat the Cyclones and and came darn close against the Huskies. So I am going to go with Minshew in that fashion. But again, like I said, coin flip between him and Benjamin. And Benjamin, to me, starting 2019 is certainly going to be the Pac-12 player of the year preseason. Yeah. And like you mentioned before, the game against Washington was almost out of his hands in the fact that it was a, a snowy game. Um, so that's not 
necessarily as much of a, a detriment from Minshew. Um, and like I mentioned, being only sacked 13 times on 662 attempts, uh, attempts is really, uh, you got to have some great pocket awareness and know your surroundings, know what's going on um, yeah. to, to avoid it that much. Additionally, he spread the ball around a lot this year. 10, got, 10 Cougars caught at least 20 passes this year. Six mm-hmm. players caught at least four touchdown passes. So yeah, it was similar with, similarly with me, Chappie, almost a coin flip. Um, so uh, I, I can definitely see why you would go with Minshew in this in this situation. Yeah, and that was, I mean, he he ended up being the Pac-12's Offensive Player of the Year. Now, my defensive most outstanding player of the year was not the conference's selection, and I'm going to go with Evan Weaver, the outside linebacker from Cal. Now, Weaver was number two in the Pac-12 in tackles. He had 159 total tackles, which is 12.2 per game. That's quite a bit. Four and mm-hmm. a half sacks, nine and a half tackles for loss. But he was an athletic linebacker. Again, being an outside linebacker, you're asked to drop in coverage at times. Six pass breakups and two interceptions. One of them was a pick six against Washington, who they beat. Um, now, Ben Burkirvin was the the linebacker from the Huskies, was named the, the defensive player of the year in the Pac-12. But in that game, Weaver... Uh, beat him head to head. Now, obviously, as a linebacker, you don't uh, have single control of the outcome of the game. But Weaver certainly stepped up in that game, and and his pick six really was ultimately the difference in that one. Um, he was on a defense at Cal that was number twenty-two in the nation in scoring defense, number eleven in pass efficiency defense. Which means that not only are you defending the pass well, but in in order to do that, you're covering things up in the front seven, which is where Weaver played. Um, and they were number four. The Cal Bears were number four defensively in yards per play, whereas Washington was 12th. So again, Weaver was on a defense that uh, statistically was a little bit higher in some of those categories than Burkirvan was. Not to mention, I think that Burkirvan had a little bit more help with his secondary. Washington's secondary was one of the best in the country, maybe the best in the country. And also he had guys like uh, Tevis Bartlett playing along with him at linebacker. So to me, on paper and, and watching the film, I think Ben Burkirvan from Washington had maybe a, a slightly better supporting cast, whereas Weaver kind of took a lot of that and, and took charge and really was the MVP of that pretty good Cal defense and Justin Wilcox and what he's running out there in Berkeley. So I'm going to give it to Evan Weaver, number 89 from Cal. Who do you have most outstanding on defense? Well, I'm going to go with uh, another linebacker, but uh, Chase Hansen from Utah. Oh, I and... love that guy. Similarly to Chris Hansen, he he asked a lot of his opponents this year to why don't you take a seat, just just, <laughs> just take a seat. Nice, he finished Good one, man. <laughs> finished the season with 114 tackles, 22 tackles for loss, five sacks, two picks. One of those returned for a touchdown. Also added four passes defended and a fumble recovery. What struck me was how consistent he was this year. Seven of his games, he finished with at least two tackles for loss. Three of those games finished with at least three tackles for loss and had six games with at least 11 tackles. So um, on that stingy Utah defense, he was easily the one of the, the, the biggest standouts um, and was just all around the ball and uh, oftentimes in opponents' backfields uh, creating havoc. Yeah, I got to tell you, the moment as a, as a Northwestern fan, the moment that I found out that he was not going to be suiting up in the Holiday Bowl, that was a big sigh of relief for Wildcat <laughs> fans because Hanson, like you said, is just all over the field. That guy just dominated, and it was it was hard for me not to go with him as my most outstanding defensive player. But again, I you know clearly. 
statistically anyway, Weaver had the better stats. And again, um, I, I looked at Utah as holistically having a better defense and better personnel than, than Cal did. So to me, Weaver stood out a little bit more on his defense, but speaking of Utah's defense, uh, as we get into now, BIP are off the radar players. My off the radar defensive player is going to be Hanson's teammate and linebacker mate in that four, two, five defense. And that's Cody Barton from Utah. Now, Barton was an honorable mention all Pac-12 player, but he was seventh in the league in tackles with 104. He had four sacks, ten and a half tackles for a loss, and six uh, pass breakups in uh, in the course of the season. And you know, again, when you're playing a four-two-five, you really need two good linebackers like Washington had, but also like Utah had. So you've got Hanson on one side, but then Cody Barton, I think, was the uh, you know equally as good and. Uh, he kind of helped elevate Hanson's play as Hanson elevated Barton's play. And that defense for the Utes was in the top 40 in seven of the eight major defensive categories, including number five against the rush and number 16 in scoring defense. So when you've got a defense that's playing well, it's usually because you've got two great linebackers. And so Cody Barton was my off the radar defensive player. How about you, Bip, on the defensive side? Who was yeah, the diamond in the rough? Yeah, and I, and I like your pick. Um, it, Barton didn't make first or second team all Pac-12, but if you look at the the selections, it, the Pac-12 was loaded with linebackers this year, so I, I really like right. your selection with that one. Um, I had a couple guys that I wanted to touch upon real quickly. First, uh, Jalen Hawkins from Cal uh, led the Golden Bears with six picks, which is tied for second in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, Willie Taylor, uh, a rush linebacker from Washington State recruited as a safety wasn't a full-time starter this year and was even listed on ESPN as a running back but finished the year with seven and a half tackles for loss four sacks a pick and three forced fumbles but my number one I'm going to go with Thomas Graham cornerback from Oregon led the Ducks with 18 passes defended uh, their game against um, Arizona State, in which he was matched up against Nikhil Harry, uh, often had six passes defended, also picked off three passes and had one defensive touchdown. None of these three guys that I mentioned even made honorable mention, all Pac-12 honors, which was a head scratcher to me, at least for Graham and Hawkins. But these three guys are all coming back next year. Look for them as they're, uh, they should be making a case once again to be at least uh, honorable mention Pac-12. And I also want to give a, a mention to Colin Schooler from Arizona. That guy with, with the hair yeah. flowing from outside of the helmet, that guy was all over the place. 21 and a half tackles for loss. That's just an amazing stat that, that jumps out to me on a on a team that really was not one of the best defenses in the Pac-12 this year. I don't think they were even maybe in the top half. He also was number five in the conference in tackles, and he was only a sophomore last year. So look out for number seven in the, uh, the Cardinal and Blue coming back for the Wildcats this upcoming season. Yeah, just another linebacker in that loaded group of uh, Pac-12. <laughs> yep, yep. It's good to see that they are, like I said, it's a good, to, good to see that the Pac-12 is getting back to some of those defensive roots. Yeah. Now, speaking of the Wildcats, my off-the-radar offensive player was a guy who also played for Arizona and was an honorable mention all Pac-12 selection, and that's Sean Poindexter. Now, um, 42 catches this year doesn't really jump out off the stat sheets. 63 receiving yards per game was ninth in the conference. But again, you look at some of these um, these other receivers on those other teams, especially the teams that throw the ball around like Washington State does and the wealth of talent that they have at USC. 
Um, and then not to mention, you know, the, the steady receivers for the Washington Huskies. Poindexter was second in the conference with 11 touchdown catches um, and also second in the conference in terms of big play. He averaged 18.1 yards per catch. So when whoever was playing quarterback for Arizona, oh, Arizona, because they went through three or four of them this year, they knew to find Poindexter on the outside. And unfortunately for them, he's a senior. He graduates. But I thought that he had a, a pretty good season uh that maybe a lot of people didn't know his name outside of tucson so i'm he's gonna get my nod here for off the radar offensively bit well chappy we go back to back weeks with having at least one uh off the radar uh matches i also had poindexter as my yeah. number one off the radar guy uh for for many of the same reasons that you did but i also had a, a group a position group written down as well as my number two so i'll go over that real quick and that's the oregon state group of receivers their top three guys each caught over 55 passes and each had at least 649 yards. Isaiah Hodgins in particular had 876 yards to lead the Beavers. Uh, also added five touchdowns and averaged 14.8 yards per catch. It's kind of feast or famine with him, uh, but he was really on during four different games this year. Nevada, Colorado, USC, and Oregon when he had at least 125 yards receiving and eight catches in each game. So, um, for as much maligned as what Oregon State was this year, and a lot of the uh, attention went to their star freshman running back, uh, Jamar Jefferson, the, the receivers were no slouch um, as they, uh, but unfortunately for the Beavers, they didn't have much behind those top three. So, right. um, but, uh, but yeah, no, great pick in the, in, in Poindexter as I, I'm right there with you, buddy. Yeah. And, and I agree. I, you know, when I, when I was looking through Oregon State's, uh, stats and, and looking at some of the highlights that they had in a two and ten football season, those receivers were really good. Um, Trayvon Bradford was one that really stood out to me. Like you mentioned, Hudgens as well. Um, Timmy Mar or Timmy Hernandez, who graduates this year, uh, had a pretty good season as well in terms of production. So Jonathan Smith, he knows offense. I think that that's going to be a group to uh, really lead the charge for them offensively, in addition to having Jefferson in the backfield. Uh, they do get Tristan Jebbia transferring over from Nebraska. They also have uh, Jake Luton, who uh, did some good things for them at quarterback. So a little bit of a uh, competition for the signal caller there in Corvallis. And uh, I'm not going to stand here and say that they are the team to watch out for as a surprise in the Pac-12 North. But um, in in I think in the next year or two, Jonathan Smith is going to have this team at least competing uh, if he can hopefully start getting the recruiting up a little bit there. Yeah, and, and Jefferson was one of the bigger screw jobs this year in regards to someone that didn't make all-conference honors. Yeah. Um, when looking at his stats um, compared to now – the Pac-12, similarly to their linebackers, have a lot of good running backs, but sure. I thought for sure he should have been at least second team. So, yeah, I agree right. with you that uh, the Beavers have some some momentum to to go forward to next year as much as you can uh, coming off of a two-win season. And they're one of the teams that we talked about uh, in our first Transfer Portal Assessment podcast. They, mm -hmm. they picked up some good guys in that transfer market, so it'll be interesting to see um, how soon they can gel and, and get going, uh, especially on the offensive side of the ball. So, um, right. so what about coach of the year, Bip? Who, who gets the golden whistle in the, uh, in the conference that has the golden state? 
Well, I'm going to be a little bit repetitive here, and I'm going to go Mike Leach, Washington State. Yeah, I am um, too, so that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Washington State went 9-4 and four last year, so it's not like this was a dumpster fire team going into 2018. However, they lose Luke Falk. They lose their starting running back uh, from 2017. They also lose three of their top four wide receivers from that 2017 team. And maybe more importantly than anything, they suffer the loss of Tyler Holinsky in that right. tragic uh incident where he took his life. So right. you wonder how much that's weighing upon um, not only Mike Leach, but uh, also the rest of the Cougars this year. And uh, they, they bounce back only two losses this year. We're close to winning the PAC 12 North and um, we're definitely better than any team that came out of the South. Uh, they continue to play strong defense in tw- uh, as 2017's um, team had an underrated defense as well. And I think that is more impressive over the past couple of years than any of their offensive numbers that they've put up is the fact that, um, you know, this, this Mike Leach led team that is always known for the offensive firepower. Um, we've touched upon a, a few times already, Chappie, the fact that they're becoming one of the better, uh, PAC 12 defenses year in and year out is really, uh, a, a, a tribute to Mike Leach knowing that it needed to improve and doing something about it, um, for the Cougars. Yeah. There's, there's nothing in any coaching manual or any coaching cl- clinic that anybody can attend that prepares you for something as tragic as a player death, you know, um, especially right. a, a suicide, which is a, you know, its own topic in its own right. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the delicate balancing act of not only showing sympathy and giving counseling to your players and their families. And of course the Holinsky family, who I think was great through all this, but then at mm-hmm. the same time, trying not to look insensitive by saying we've got a job to do. We've got a season to play. We've got to move forward. Um, So I think that Leach did an outstanding job in that regard. Um, They were picked to finish fifth in the North and they ended up finishing second. And really like we touched on, they went 11 and two. Those two losses were by a total of 16 points. And one of them was in a rivalry game, which you can kind of throw out the records anyway, but in the games that they won, they won five times by 21 points or more. So it wasn't like, they were the University of Texas who had 10 one-score games. They had five games where it was really a blowout. And, and we touched on that Arizona game earlier where they won. They scored 69 points and only gave up 20-something. So um, right. they were in the top third in six of eight major offensive categories, which, you again, you expect with the Mike Leach coach team. And you can throw out the run game because he pretty much does. <laughs> um, right. They, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the good defense that you, that you talked about, they beat three ranked teams. And also they beat the FCS runner-up in Eastern Washington. And the biggest victory in that was they ended up getting their record-setting quarterback to come over to Pullman to play for them in 2019. And he will be eligible um, Mm -hmm. to suit up for the Cougars this year. So things seem to keep rolling for Mike Leach when a lot of people are kind of gunning for him. And, you know, Unfortunately, it seems like a lot of people want Mike Leach to fail for whatever reason. I like the guy. I think he's entertaining. I think he's great for college football. And I really enjoy the fact that he doesn't feel he has to hide behind any sort of PC police. He's going to tell it like he thinks it is and and really doesn't apologize if you don't like it. Um, 
So, you know, I have in my notes here, the pirate plunder the tw- Pac-12, and you can bet your booty he'll do it again in 2019. So look out for the Cougars. <laughs> yeah, and I'm with you. It's kind of refreshing in today's PC world to have someone who does go out there, and it's not as if he, you know, does anything, in, in my opinion anyways, to majorly offend anyone. No. He's just not going to go in and walk on eggshells about everything. If he yeah. sees something, he's going to call it as he sees it. And it's also really nice to see – um, you know, I, I, I like the fact that he was one of the guys on the cusp of this offensive explosion. So I'll always have um, a rooting interest in any Mike Leach led team because, I mean, he's really one of the guys to thank for um, all of the offense and all of the firepower and all of the ingenuity that we see in college football today as it relates to the offense. Yeah. And a cool story I read about him when he was brought over with Bob Stoops to be the offensive coordinator at Oklahoma. Um, Stoops approached him because he liked what he did when he was the offensive coordinator under Hal Mummy when they had Tim Couch and they were running the air raid in Lexington, Kentucky. And he was Mm -hmm. also with Mummy at Valdosta State before that. And so Stoops says to him, I want you to run this offense and I I, I think it's really going to break the mold in the Big 12 and and we're going to win championships with this. And Leach told him straight to his face, I'll do it if you let me run my offense and you don't interfere. And Bob Stutz in the article said, Leach reminded him at least once a day, this is my offense. This is my offense. You know, <laughs> I, I'm running this. And so Stoops basically, I think, kind of got frustrated and annoyed at the fact and said, look, Mike, you got it. It's working. I trust you. I brought you over for a reason. It's your offense. Stop reminding me, you know. So and that's really yeah. the mark of a not only a good head coach to trust your coordinators, but also the confidence that Mike Leach had in saying, I know what I'm doing and and no one can run this offense better than me. And and that's a big mm-hmm. reason why he's really his own offensive coordinator as a head coach. And like I had talked about earlier, the playbook is not as deep in in uh, complex as people might think. It's it's essentially uh, a handful of plays that always work. It's just kind of dressed in a different formation or you know, you, you have different takeoff points against different coverages and different landmarks, but ultimately it works. And you know, Gardner Minshew this year was perfect e- example of that. And if we see Gage uh, Gubra do the same thing next year, then you know, Mike Leach can be etched into the College Football Hall of Fame if he isn't already as, right. as probably the best offensive mind of the uh, the modern era. Right. So um, we talk always about these conferences, BIP, and the Pac-12. Where do you rank them and why? And I think we, you kind of touched on this on the last one. And I'm going to actually go first and tell you that I'm going to revise my thoughts and my arguments. And I'm going to give credit to you. When we talked about the Big 12, I had started to make the argument that I thought that the Pac-12 was a little bit ahead of the Big 12. And, and we kind of put, the, or I put them kind of as 3A and 3B. Well, after looking at it, uh, and, and going a, a bit deeper, the Pac-12 is clearly um, not on par with the uh, with the Big 12. So they went eight and nine against the other Power Five conferences in college football, two and zero against the ACC, three and three against the Big Ten, one and three against the said Big 12, like we had talked about, and then zero and one against the SEC. They had three teams in the final college football playoff rankings, which to me is is kind of the biggest tell because I don't always like to include bowl. Uh, victories as as a major indicator of how successful a team is during the course of a season for various reasons. Um, but they had uh, Washington finish at number nine, Wazoo at 13, and Utah at 17, with it, which gave them an average final ranking of 13th. Um, whereas the the Big 12, which we had talked about last week, 
they had four teams in the final college football playoff ranking with an average final ranking of 10th. So I am going to put the Pac-12 at fourth. And and I think that you had mentioned last week that that's where you'd put them as well. But tell me, uh, it, do you agree at four and why are they at four? Yeah, I agree at four. Um, the, the fact that this is really a, a top-heavy conference. And let me let mm-hmm. me say that next year could be completely different. But if we're talking completely, oh, sure. completely about this year, there were so many underachieving teams this year. Stanford, Oregon, USC, even Utah to a certain extent kind of underachieved. Um, w- when you look at it, outside of Washington and Washington State, the Pac-12 was 4-26 and 26 uh, against teams that were in the AP top 25 at the time that they played them. Now, Washington and Washington state were a combined five and two. So you can't completely exclude them, but just kind of shows you how top heavy this conference was. Um, and, and then when you factor in some of the bottom feeders of this Oregon state, Colorado, and then even taking into account UCLA and Arizona from this year, um, the bottom of their conference is about as low as any of the um, Power Five conferences as far as this right. year is concerned. And yep. even the the middle of it, Stanford, Oregon, Cal, even you can throw in there, Arizona State, they'll give you some good games, but I wouldn't put that up really against any other conference outside of the ACC if you were to put them head-to-head and say confidently that the Pac-12's middle tier would knock off anyone else from the other conferences outside of the ACC. So I think it puts them squarely in the four, in fourth. And um, so the, the lack of um, – because even, even Washington, Washington State, I wouldn't put those two up against just about any other Power 5 top two teams as well. So kind of top to bottom, um, I, I, I wanted to keep them ahead of the ACC because I think the ACC was still just a little bit a notch below outside of Clemson. Um, right. So cl- my clear number four uh, was a Pac-12 for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I agree with, with really all those thoughts there, you know, and again, I, uh, kudos to you for pointing that out and and getting me to think more about it after, after last week's podcast. So, um, good teams at the top, like you mentioned, but once you get past those big three, UW, Wazoo and Utah, it was really then, um, a a lot of teams that needed some work and and certainly some polishing. So I agree. Fourth out of fourth out of five. Um, so there were some, very entertaining games in the Pac-12 this year. We'll talk about three of them. I want to start with uh, the uh, the Washington-Oregon game. So that came back uh, in uh, early, early October, I believe. So Washington was ranked 7th and playing the 17th-ranked Oregon Ducks out in Eugene. Now, Oregon ended up winning 30-27 to in overtime, but um, there were four lead changes in that game, and it came down to a chance where Washington could have uh, tied the game to, um, to, or I'm sorry, could have won the game to win it. And Peyton Henry, all he had to do was kick a 37-yard field goal. He kicked it twice, made one, missed one as uh, uh, Oregon called two timeouts to try and ice him. So when he came down to his moment of uh, moment of truth, he he ended up missing a 37-yarder, which put the game into overtime. And ironically, he made a 41-yarder earlier in the game. And Peyton Henry was a pretty solid kicker for the Huskies. So in the overtime frame, C.J. Verdell had a six-yard touchdown run to win it. Uh, he finished the game with 29 carries for 111 yards, two touchdowns. And then Dylan Mitchell, good game receiving, eight catches for 119 yards and a touchdown as well. Um, 
this game really kind of uh, got away from the Huskies when they had it fourth and one, and Jake Browning uh, was tackled for a loss of three, tried to make something happen, fumbled, and it was recovered by Oregon, which um, kind of stopped a, a Washington drive, and the Huskies just couldn't finish the job in in the extra frame. So um, that was one of the top games this year. Biff, what's another one that we could point to as entertaining in the, the land of the Pac-12? Yeah, speaking of letting a game fall away from you, I'm going to go with uh, number seven, Stanford at number 20, Oregon. So in this game, Oregon entered the half with a 24 to seven lead in Austin Stadium as that stadium was rocking and it looked like the Ducks would cruise to an easy victory. Stanford cuts the lead to 24-21 late in the third quarter with a Bryce Love touchdown. Oregon then responds with a late fourth quarter touchdown uh, that was capped. Um, that capped an 11-play, 70-yard drive that spanned over six minutes. And with a 10-point lead with just over four minutes left, the Ducks once again figured to be on their way to victory. However, Stanford immediately fires back with a three-play drive that, that goes for 79 yards um, and is capped by a J.J. Arcega-Whiteside touchdown. Oregon then runs five plays, gets the clock down to just under a minute, and on second and three, disaster strikes. Oregon fumbles the ball, allowing Stanford to recover and drive down to kick the game-tying field goal. Stanford scores on two plays in overtime, while Oregon saw Justin Herbert complete a, a pass for um, a first down, and then follows that up with three straight incomplete passes and an interception to seal the to seal the victory for the Cardinal. This was one of those games that um, I think it was relatively well documented, especially from ESPN, where. As they're showing the highlights, they show the percentage of likelihood that Oregon walks away with a victory, and they were amongst the 90% uh, throughout the entire fourth quarter. So if you're betting on on the Ducks in this one, you're feeling pretty confident. And then you have several um, questionable calls uh, that mm -hmm. were made by, by Oregon that you're like, okay, it, revisionist history, hindsight being 2020 what were you doing? Yeah. Um, but uh, Stanford, to their credit, hung into this one and played tough throughout the entire game. And this is one of those ones that stung the entire season for the Ducks as um, they were, they never seemed to fully recover throughout the rest of the year. Yeah. So uh, the, the big highlight for me was with 51 seconds left, um, all they had to do was take a knee and run out the clock. So they give the ball to C.J. Verdell, who is a reliable running back, and he fumbles with 51 seconds left. Gives the ball to the uh, the Cardinal, and Jet Toner, great name, by the way, yes. um, hits a 32-yard field goal to put it into overtime, and then K.J. Costello, who called this one of the coolest games he's ever been a part of in terms of the highs and the lows, he hits Colby Parkinson on a tipped pass, nonetheless, to, to win the game. So after the game... They asked Oregon coach Mario Cristobal, why did you run the ball instead of taking a knee, which every good coach would have done? And he said, quote, we felt good about the run game. Hey, Mario, how can you not feel great about the friggin' kneel play? It's the <laughs> highest percentage play in college football. Why do you not take a knee in that case? I mean, to me, that's really just ego getting in the way and saying, okay, we don't just want to win. We want to... Um, we want to run this team into the ground and, and maybe call that karma. Maybe that's something to where yeah. um, it's uh, you know, it's, it's somebody who um, 
gets uh, gets their comeuppance. So, you know, no no disrespect to Coach Cristobal, but that was just a, a bad move. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, I mean, even outside of that, there were plenty of opportunities for, for Oregon to put this game away. Like I mentioned before, going in 24-7, playing in Autzen Stadium against Stanford, you had an opportunity to step on their neck, uh, but they just kept letting Stanford in throughout the entire game. Right, I know. So, um, kudos to uh, the Cardinal for that one. Now, the the third game that I have here is the Territorial Cup, or the duel in the desert between Arizona and Arizona State. And this game, I got to admit, uh, as somebody from the Midwestern region of the United States, I always enjoy watching this game just because of how passionate their fan bases are and how into it they're uh, their players are because really, I mean, you've got uh, the Arizona Cardinals football team, which is usually not much to to write home about. So this is the event in Arizona sports, at least in the fall. So in that game, there was a lot of trash talking before the game, um, and as you can expect, but um, Arizona State, long story short, gets down by 19 points going into the fourth quarter and ends up scoring 20 consecutive points to ended up or to ultimately win the game. Now, uh, Manny Wilkins, the quarterback for the Sun Devils, was said to tell his team at the end of the third quarter, let's treat it like a basketball game. We get a stop, we get a bucket. We get a stop, we get a bucket. So chip away a little bit by little bit. There's no 21-point plays in football, so you've got to do just little things at a time to get the uh, to get the job done and to get that victory. And so the defense came up big. They forced two turnovers. One was an interception, one was a fumble. And then the uh, previously mentioned Eno Benjamin, who is you know clearly one of the best players in the Pac-12, gets his game-winning 22-yard touchdown. So it wasn't like they got a one-yard plunge uh, toward the end. This was a hard-fought, good, good run by number three for the uh, the maroon and white. And then Arizona proceeded to come downfield and missed a 45-yard field goal wide right to uh, to let the game get away from them. So that was um, that was impressive. And Herm gets to a bowl with that victory in year one, and more importantly, he gets the win in the Territorial Cup over the rival Wildcats of Arizona. So really, the the new coach bowl, Herm versus versus Sumlin, which. Again, like we talked about back in August, everybody had Kevin Sumlin uh, winning that one and winning the the battle of records between the two, and and Herm got the best of them. So, kudos to the uh, to Coach Edwards and, and his Sun Devils for that one. Yeah, that that was a that was enjoy, an enjoyable game for sure. And what a feather to have in your cap if you're Herm Edwards talking to players that are thinking about both Arizona state and Arizona. All you have to do is just pop in tape of the fourth quarter and you're pretty much set uh, for the next year or so. Right. Exactly. Um, and like we mentioned, there were a lot of entertaining games that the Pac-12 offered us. So choosing three was a little bit of a, a difficult task, but certainly fun as a, as a college football passionate. Um, just real briefly before we get to our Pac-12 thoughts and talks about possible realignment or additions or swaps in the conference, um, I do want to include BYU. So BYU finished 7-6 and six on the year. Uh, they did play in a bowl game. They played out in the Boise Bowl, uh, the uh, whatever potato bowl out in Boise, um, <laughs> against Western Michigan, which they came up big and beat the Broncos. Uh, sorry, Kalamazoo natives, uh, fire up chips, <laughs> but, um, you know, BYU had some good things this year. They, they were kind of up and down. I mean, their, their high was beating number six, Wisconsin out at Camp Randall stadium. Uh, that was a, you know, the biggest win in the Kalani Sataki era. 
Um, but they they couldn't win more than two games consecutively this season. They beat Arizona. We talked about Wisconsin. They beat uh, FCS McNeese State. They beat Hawaii in Provo, which, you know, Hawaii's always got that obstacle when they have to come and play on the mainland. They beat UMass and they beat New Mexico State. So you look at the teams that they beat this year, BYU that is, nothing really to, to, to brag about. They opened up at Arizona getting a win, which many people thought was going to start a great era of football under Kevin Sumlin. Um, and that kind of put him in a little bit of a warm seat right off the get-go. So, um, you know, the Pac-12 teams that they did play, Cal, Washington, um, Utah, they lost to all those teams. They did beat Arizona. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of if they were in the Pac-12, and we'll get to this in a minute, maybe I'm tipping my hat at uh, possible Pac-12 realignment, but um, they were one and three against Pac-12 teams this year. So decent season, but certainly not what Cougar fans are accustomed to. A lot of tradition of winning out there in Provo. Um, players that stood out. Zach Wilson had a heck of a bowl game, Bip, and we talked about that when we did our bowl recaps, but um, yeah. basically was perfect throwing the football, had four touchdowns, and he was only a freshman last year. So um, barring any mission that he's going on, he's going to be there for the Cougars for a little while. Um, Squally Canada had a good season running the football, and then on defense, Sione Takitaki was fun to watch, number 16, their middle linebacker. Um, and BYU actually did have a pretty good defense this season. Looking at some of their defensive stats, they were 24th in scoring defense, 12th in yards per play given up, um, 27th in rush defense. So they did a good job of kind of bottling teams up, forcing them to throw the football. Uh, they were no lo no lower than uh, 78th in any of the major defensive stats. And that was in red zone defense, which sometimes can be skewed anyway. So um, not too bad for BYU, but certainly Cougar fans are hoping for better in 2019. Um, well, let's get to uh, let's get to some Pac-12 thoughts to snack on, and that can include realignment and, and team swapping bips. So um, let us know what's on your mind as you think about the Pac-12 this year and Pac-12 in general. Well, the the biggest thing that that strikes me with the Pac-12 this year is just kind of how um, a lot of uh, teams underachieved and and performed a little differently than than what we expected. Stanford, uh, in particular, different than most uh, Stanford teams of recent memory, they finished 123rd in the country in rushing yards per game. Defensively, they were 78th in defensive yards per allowed per game. And and when you think about it, it's really staggering to think that a Stanford team in the 2000s has would finish in the um, as one of the bottom ten teams in the country in regards to to rushing yards per game. I know. Um, so that combined with the fact that their defense wasn't much to write home about this year. Another thing that I was really shocked about was the use of Khalil Tate at um, Arizona. As yeah. when you bring when you bring Kevin Sumlin in, you figure that he was brought in um, obviously because he's a, a a good coach in his own right and has a good history. But um, marrying him up with Khalil Tate when Tate was such a dynamic uh, runner of the ball last year um, really surprised me how little he was used in his legs uh, or with his legs. He threw for almost a, a thousand more uh, yards this year, but that's not really his calling card. He averaged half a yard fewer per pass attempt, completed 5.7% fewer uh, of his passes, 
But most importantly, he rushed for almost 1,200 fewer yards in 2018 than 2017. He also rushed for 6.2 fewer yards per carry. Um, So uh, he was at the at the beginning of the season. He was uh, on the short list of Heisman hopefuls, and that went away almost immediately after their first game or two. Um, So a couple of big surprises uh, for me from from the Pac-12 from this past year, and they weren't of a a positive nature. However, moving forward to 2019, I can definitely see a definite bounce back year from the Pac-12 as a lot of these teams that underachieved and maybe didn't uh, uh, meet expectations have a lot coming back. So look for the Pac-12 to maybe provide some fireworks this year as we turn the page on 2018 and, and move forward into the 2019 season. Yeah, I, I had the same thoughts about uh, not only Stanford, but uh, Khalil Tate. And, and we had talked about that throughout the season about how is he not better utilizing Khalil Tate? And I'm really surprised that he's choosing to stay in Tucson. I thought that he might uh, maybe transfer out to Illinois and reunite with his former offensive coordinator, Rod Smith, uh, for the Illini, I thought that that would be a good fit for him. But uh, maybe there's something that we're not seeing, and maybe there's uh, there was kind of a, a rekindling in the second half of the season where Khalil Tate has confidence and he has um, mm-hmm. you know thoughts that uh, it it is going to work out. Just let's just give it time, and uh, and it'll work. So. Um, my thoughts, you know, I, I love the whole Pac-12 after dark thing that ESPN has started. And, um, you know, it is kind of cool to see. And I, I like the fact that they're starting to show some of these Pac-12 games on Friday night uh, because, you know, watching a whole slew of games on Saturday and watching the SEC game at nighttime, usually by 10 o'clock when the Pac-12 games are kicking off here on the East Coast, we're tired. And it's it's <laughs> difficult to put in that long day, especially knowing, you know, I got to get up for church the next morning and I've got two kids that uh, certainly won't be merciful in terms of sleeping in. So, um, you know, it is kind of nice to see some of these Pac-12 games um after dark uh, on a night where maybe that's the only thing that that's on TV. So the other thing that I have is, and I touched on it earlier in the podcast, the PAC 12 was better defensively than offensively this year. So if you want the stats to back that up, they had four teams that were in the top 20 defensively um, in terms of statistical categories. So Utah had four, was in the top 20 in four defensive categories, Washington State in three of them, Washington in four categories, and then Cal in two categories. So there's four teams that were a top 20 defense in uh, at least a, a couple or you know three or four major defensive categories overall. Offensively, you only had two teams that were in the top 20. Washington State was in four top 20 uh, major statistical categories. And then Arizona State, surprisingly, was the only other one that had more than one top 20 finish in offensive categories. So, you know, most people look at this and they say, oh, well, the Pac-12, they don't play defense. They throw the ball around. It's just air raid up in uh, Pullman. And then you've got just spread type offenses down in California. But these teams, mainly Utah, Washington, Cal, and now Washington State are playing good defense on uh, on that side of the ball. So uh, kind of a, a thing that we're starting to see that the tides are turning a little bit and certainly something that you can bet that Big 12 coaches are, are probably going to be visiting coaching <laughs> clinics and trying to pick the brains of some of these uh, defensive-minded coaches like jo- or, uh, Justin Wilcox and um, – you know, Tracy Clay is the defensive coordinator at uh, Washington State and uh, Jimmy Lake at Washington and other guys like that. Yeah, if if Cal wasn't so inept on offense this year, they could have had at, at least a couple more wins this year as that defense was really impressive. Yeah. 
Um, well, last thing that we've we've kind of been doing recently is conference realignment or possible realignment. So the Pac-12, its number of teams actually matches its conference name, 12. So, Bip, is there anybody that you would think, if you were Pac-12 commissioner, that you would be interested in bringing into the Pac-12? And would anybody leave or would you up the number of teams? Well, I'm going to I'm going to borrow something that you had mentioned uh, last week in our Big 12 podcast, and I'm going to not kick the Colorado Buffaloes out, but I'm going to hope that Colorado joins the Big 12 um, as a fan. So if that does happen and I'm Pac-12 commissioner, I'm going to replace them and add two more teams. And I'm going to bring over the Boise State Broncos, the BYU Cougars and the Fresno State Bulldogs. Mm -hmm. And that gives me a, a good uh, balance of both, uh, geographic locations, as well as teams that can not only compete, but maybe, uh, use the addition to the conference as a stepping stone to improve upon their current, um, success that they have, uh, in their own respective conferences. Yeah. I think that those are, are, are good picks. Um, not only geographically, but, you know, we've seen Fresno state, um, they've always been relevant in college football, really, yeah. uh, since Pat Hill took over the program in the early 90s or, or mid 90s, I should say. Um, now with Jed, Jeff Tedford, who does have Pac-12 ties, he was mm-hmm. there when he kind of uh, brought that Cal program back to prominence. And, you know, of course, most people know Coach Aaron Rodgers there. Um I think that that's a good pick. I think that Boise, it's about time that they join a conference. So we saw it with TCU. We saw it with Utah, and it's worked out well for both of them. And Boise State, really, even at that time, was considered to be the cream of the crop of those teams anyway, of the of the mid-majors, so to speak. So I think it makes sense to bring over Boise really as a football-only member. Um, you know, you can make the argument of whether Fresno State should join other uh, other sports as well. But as you eloquently put, this is a football podcast, so we're going to strictly talk football. <laughs> um, but if I, I I wouldn't be so quick to kick out Colorado, you know, like you said, if they join the Big 12, good for them. And then we'll bring in that third team. But if, if Colorado stays, then the two teams that I would go first and foremost are BYU and Boise State, just because I mean, you look at uh, BYU's schedule as an independent the last three years. In 2016, they played three Pac-12 teams. 2017, they just played one, but then this past year, they played four of them. So they're used to the travel. Um, Utah's already in the league, and that would make a great uh, interdivisional rivalry uh, renewed. So when you're playing for conference uh, prominence like they did when they were both members of the WAC and and even the Mountain West, that was something that was even more exciting. So, you know, leaving Notre Dame out of this discussion, Bip, I want to preface that. Um, (laughs) I think that independent football is just boring. And I understand that, you know, some schools don't really have um, a reason, but uh, to me, there's no reason why BYU shouldn't belong to a conference. They, they're nowhere near Notre Dame. They don't have the independent TV contract. They don't have the uh, as big of an alumni base all over the country. It's really uh, localized within the Rocky Mountain region. So it makes the most sense to bring them to the Pac-12 if they're going to go to a, uh, a Power 5 conference, which why wouldn't you if you were BYU? Why would you want to go back to the Mountain West if the Pac-12 has a spot for you? And if they want to get back on par with those 14-team teams like the SEC, the ACC, and the Big Ten have, um, the Pac-12, they got their network. Now they need to get those two extra teams. And I think that Boise and BYU give them um, probably the best match. And, and you could make the argument for Fresno State as well, and and maybe even more so than, than BYU in that regard. So I think those are good picks, Bip. 
Yeah, and for BYU, if they ever return to 11-win football, their fans will appreciate not having to hear the endless drones of, well, they're not, they need to join a conference. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> so, so they have that to look forward to as well. Yeah, they got that going for them. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you, you're listening to us, and, and we're about done here, but you can find us not only on, on the platform that you're on, but if it's easier to listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Overcast or Radio Public. Give one of them a look if if you find it might be easier, if this is somewhat inconvenient for you. Well, Bip, like many Hollywood marriages, this podcast is done, but not for good. Uh, we'll be back in three <laughs> short days, but if you still need your college football fix, be sure to check out our previous podcast to get the scoop on what your Pac-12 team may need to watch out for amidst the landscape in college football. How do your traditions stack up to those of the SEC, the Big Ten, or the ACC or Big 12? We want to thank our sponsors, but most importantly, we want to thank all of you who are listening right now, especially those who are back again, giving us continued reason to do what we love and hopefully what you see us as doing well. Let us hear from you. Follow and DM us on Twitter or email us and let us cater you and serve your appetite. We strongly hope that you continue to subscribe, listen, but also spread the word and help us be heard. On our next episode, we're going to give the Power Five conferences some love. Uh, or I'm sorry, we're going to give the group of five conferences some love and move a little bit away from the Power Five, starting with the American Athletic Conference. We're also going to start to look at what to expect and what we'd like to see in the very near future of college football. Many thanks for listening to A Bowl Full of Chips. I am Cheppy. And I am Bip. And remember, biggest isn't always best, so thanks for choosing the right over the rest. Smell you later. <laughs> Bye.